Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by Alan Cozin and Adrian Sinclair, joint authors of McCartney Legacy, the first in a multi-volume set charting in much-needed detail Paul's fascinating solo career. This first volume covers 1969 to 1973, as Paul recreated himself in the immediate aftermath of the Beatles' breakup, a period when, newly married with a growing family, he conquered depression and self-doubt, formed a new band, and recorded five epochal albums, culminating in Band on the Run. Alan Cosin, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast, how are you? I'm great, and I'm happy to be here. Adrian Sinclair, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having us on. My pleasure. So we are here, obviously, to talk about this wonderful, epic, essential book which you've both produced called McCartney Legacy, um, which I've been buried in for the last... I don't know, two months or so since I got the PDF version of it. It's it's fantastic. Obviously, I've, I've already told you both this on email, but I just want to say on air that doing this podcast, I get sent a lot of Beatles books, some of which are excellent, some of which are less than excellent, but yours is definitely an, an outstanding work. So I just wanted to start off by thanking you both for, for writing this thing. Well, thank you. Glad you like it. So um, the book opens, Alan, with your encounter, your early encounters with with Paul in your role at the the New York Times in the early 90s. Uh, Did you always want to write about Paul from those early encounters with him? Um, Well, you know, I always wanted to write about him for the paper um, or, you know, in short pieces, individual interviews, that kind of thing. It it never would have occurred to me to do a book if not for Adrian, who came up with the idea and then it evolved as we sort of were working on it. So really, um, I thank Adrian. This is I, I wouldn't have I would have done this. I, I did a book about the Beatles, actually two books about the Beatles as a group, but I hadn't had any plans to do any of the separate ones, no. So in that case, Agent, where did the idea to work with Alan and the whole kind of project start? Well, like Alan said, it kind of evolved. It started off, the project was supposed to be just to look at Paul's time in the studio. So it was going to be like Mark Lewison's uh, complete Beatles recording sessions, but for Paul. So we'd uh, chart the recording of, of all of his um, songs from 69 to present day. Because I, I'm a big music and studio geek you know I love uh, talking to recording engineers I think that they're some of the most fascinating guys on the planet and they were were sober and kind of drug-free you know during the creation of all of these amazing songs that we all know and love uh, so yeah I was I was kind of starting to put together this recording sessions for Paul's solo life uh, solo career um, and really, the the book evolved as we started talking to different people. Uh, one of the pivotal points was when I spoke to, and, and Alan had already spoken to him by this point, actually, I have to clarify that. Alan had spoken to Denny Sywell, and I did a follow-up interview with Denny Sywell a couple of weeks later. And at the end of um, our interview, he volunteered up to us um, these diaries that his wife used to keep. And he he had these little session books as well, where he'd keep notes of when he was recording and what he was owed for them. 
So really, that was quite a pivotal moment because we ended up with this big dump of information. And really, we felt um, that we needed to do something with that beyond just just charting the recording of, of Wings albums and Paul's solo albums over that period of time. Uh, yeah, so the, the book evolved into what it became. You know, I think quite often people, when they go into writing these kind of celebrity books, they're going with the wrong intentions. But, you know, we didn't. We love Paul's music. Uh, we didn't go hunting for gossip or revelations about his private life. We went into the project with the aim of better understanding his music and his art. But what we found was that his art and his life coexist. So we couldn't tell the story of one without the other. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, we ended up presenting the whole story. So the book starts with, after the introduction that I mentioned, with Paul's slightly fiery encounter on his Scottish farm with journalists which most listeners will probably be familiar with uh, so a kind of question around that what made you want to start the book firstly in 1969 and specifically with with that kind of incident we we felt that since we were going to be covering his solo career and his career with the beatles has been thoroughly covered before his solo career not so well that the time to do it would be right after the Beatles broke up or right after John Lennon made his announcement and Paul went up to Scotland to try and regroup uh, or to be depressed for a while. And that seemed, you know, the obvious place to start the book. And then once we read about that encounter with Terence Spencer and Dorothy Bacon from Life magazine, it just suggested itself as a really good opening scene there's action violence, you name it, you know, it's all in there. But but it, it, it captures the state of, you know, Paul's not wanting to be bothered by the world, wanting to hide out and and just sort of, you know, lick his wounds in a way. And, uh, and here is the world finding its way to his door, and he's not happy about it. But being Paul McCartney, being the sort of publicity savvy guy he is he immediately knew that it was a bad idea to throw his kitchen scrapings at a couple of visitors and especially once he got a good look once his eyes focused on them he knew that he knew one of them i mean terence spencer had been photographing the beatles since 1963 so he then sort of you know worked out an accommodation with them where he would give them an interview if um terrace terence spencer surrendered the role of film in which he had taken Paul throwing this stuff at them. So just seemed a good place to start. Yeah. Like Alan said, I, I think it, I'm, I'm more of a filmmaker at heart. Um, and for me, it was like the perfect opening scene. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if you, if you were to start a film about Paul's solo career, it would start with that scene with that bucket of kitchen scraps being hauled at a photographer and a journalist um, and I remember having we had conversations uh, about where to start the book. And I said, well, let's just try here. And, you know, and we feed all the other, other information about why he was in that particular state of mind um, as flashbacks, as you would do in a film. And when we sent it to our uh, book editor, Carrie, she loved it. So it stayed that way from the second that we wrote it, basically, from day one. So that period that Paul was in Scotland trying to escape from the the worries and the stresses of apple and of the beatles he's often spoken about that as a really dark kind of low period of, of his life 
do you think that that's slightly kind of exaggerated in a sense? Do you think that that was a real, genuinely bleak period for him? Yeah, I, no, I do. Um, and it's interesting, you know, there's even, if you go on YouTube, uh, there's even eight millimetre footage of Paul on the farm at that time, telling an intruder to get off his land, you know, in no uncertain terms, in not very polite way. Um, so you, you get um, a snapshot of, of Paul on, even on film from that period, and he's quite clearly broken, angry, depressed. And the thing with depression is, you know, it can manifest itself overnight and, and it can send somebody into, you know, a really dark period very quickly. And I think that's exactly what happened with Paul. Uh, I think between September and October, he plunged into depression. You know, he seems to have used the recording of um, his first solo album as a way of, uh, you know, escaping that depression. And, and Linda was obviously at the heart of all of that, pulling him out of, of, of that state of mind that he was in. Mm. The McCartney album that you mentioned there, that, that soon starts to take shape around this period. And it's interesting because it's it's known now, especially as this kind of mixture between these very experimental, maybe half-finished pieces and the big cinematic, maybe I'm amazed every night, etc. What do you think Paul was trying to achieve with this kind of mixture of styles on this first record? I think he was just trying to show that he's still there and he can do something. Um, what it was going to be, I don't think he knew at the start. Um, that's why we have this whole bunch of home experiments before he even gets into the studio. And and also he wasn't sure at the start whether this was going to be just a sort of home demo album or something he was going to put out. And I think that as his um, confidence increased and certainly once he got back into the studio and recorded things like Maybe I'm Amazed, I mean, it, it was kind of clear that he had something here that he could put out. And I think he was just making sort of a new Paul McCartney calling card in a way, you know, everybody knew him as a Beatle up to this point. And I think he wanted to show that there is on one hand more to him than just his Beatle time, but that also there is a connection between Beatle Paul and this Paul. And, you know, maybe I'm amazed in a way is that point of connection because that's a song that was good enough to have been on a Beatles album. So I think that, I think that's what he was trying to show really. If anything, I think he needed to do something partly to get out of the depression, partly to get his own career kickstarted because obviously he was going to have to do something on his own now, not with the Beatles. So it just sort of made sense. Uh, I, I guess a, a, another question would be, okay, once he got into the studio and did Maybe I'm Amazed, why did he not reconsider all the early stuff from the sessions and say, okay, you know, actually in Abbey Road, I can do this a lot better. You know, it can sound better. I can have an engineer. And uh, But he apparently was was pleased with what he had and went with it. The album was generally received, it, it's seen now as being having quite a negative reception. And then obviously it's been kind of rediscovered as this lo-fi masterpiece over time. From researching the kind of the contemporary view, was it quite harshly treated or was that is that a bit of a myth that's built up over time? 
No, I don't think it was a myth. I think it was harshly treated at the time, but it was harshly treated because every review was looking at it in context and they were looking at Abbey Road and then they played McCartney after it. And, you know, it just didn't tally for a lot of reviewers. They couldn't see really where where Paul was going creatively, where his head was at. So I think that's why a lot of reviewers came down on that record pretty heavily. And then, you know, the next album was a reaction to that. It was, you know, okay, so they don't like the homespun uh, thing. You know, I'm going to do something with a, you know, much bigger overblown production. Rams is an interesting one because, as you say, it's completely opposite from McCartney in its its creation. And the difference this time is uh, Paul obviously uses musicians and builds a record up uh, with other people. Tell us a little bit about how the the players on on this record on Ram come together. Uh, well, he he set up auditions as soon as he got to New York, uh, which was unusual for him. He he had said he'd never auditioned anybody before, and and he was a little not totally comfortable with it. And the people auditioning weren't totally comfortable with it either because they were top flight studio players and they weren't used to auditioning. They were used to getting a call, come in, play, we'll put the music in front of you, you do it, you go home, you get paid. And so having to come in and wait, you know, together in a, or an anteroom while Paul is auditioning in the other room is was odd for them. But he had a list of people to call. Um, first day was drummers. The second day was guitarists. Um, I guess he figured for the moment that was all he would need. And they and he and he picked a few people. Uh, he had a backup list, but he was immediately happy with Denny Sywell. That was who he wanted. He he originally booked him just for a couple of weeks and then was going to go to another drummer and then another drummer, figuring that the variety would be good. But he was so happy with Denny that he just canceled the other drummers. And then first he had David Spinoza. David Spinoza was, you know, fine uh, for what he needed. And I think he would have continued with David Spinoza, except that David Spinoza was a really busy studio guy and he wasn't used to this kind of arrangement where you're supposed to give me your next three weeks and whether or not we do anything on any of those days is sort of up to us. And by the way, you're only being paid for the days that we are doing something. Spinoza couldn't deal with that. You know, he, as a studio musician, had a diary that he kept and every day was supposed to be some kind of work. And when Paul and Linda started canceling sessions because they were going to maybe do some bass overdubs or vocal overdubs or had a legal meeting, um, Spinoza began to book other jobs. And when Linda changed her mind about the scheduling and Paul, Spinoza had a problem with this. So then they went to Hugh McCracken, who had been on the short list, but hadn't been able to come into audition because he was recording with Aretha Franklin at that time. Once he came in, that was the sort of trio for, for Ram. It was pretty much set. And, you know, until they brought in orchestral players and, and that kind of thing. And Paul did a lot of overdubbing. Um, he obviously was thinking that at some point he was going to need a band you know, to, not for Ram, but to go touring later. And he began thinking about these guys. But at the start, it was just to have studio players 
to play the stuff, also to put him out of his comfort zone. You know, he was used to British studios, British studio music, well, British musicians, particularly those he grew up with. And and this sort of put him in a completely different kind of situation. So, and I think that was part of what he wanted to do just to sort of give himself new challenges, which is one of the things he does all the time. Um, you mentioned Denny Sywell's name there. And again, obviously, Denny's a name that will be familiar to most listeners. I've listened to a Lawrence Juba interview a while ago and Lawrence and he, Lawrence was asked about his kind of friendship with Paul post wings. And Lawrence said, well, obviously they stay in touch, but Paul's particularly close to Denny Sywell because they have a similar age, I suppose, whereas Lawrence and Steve were much younger than, uh, than, than Paul. What was the, the kind of the understanding, the key to that relationship of, of Paul and, and Denny Sywell? I think they clicked on a number of levels. Obviously, they were a very similar age. I think they had very similar musical interest, you know, in, in terms of they were into a real diverse range of, of, of music, the two of them. But also they they clicked personally, uh, which is obviously a really important thing when you're working with someone day in, day out. Um, so when Spinoza left the sessions because he, you know, he wanted to keep his diary full and keep keep the money coming in, Denny was quite happy to just go with the loose arrangement that they had because he saw the bigger picture. And it's interesting, you know, when when Denny left Wings, uh, you could tell that he was heartbroken about leaving Wings and leaving Paul because they had such a deep connection. Um, and we spoke, you know, at length with, with Denny about that and you read about it in the book. And it took a number of years for the two of them to, you know, patch up their differences but you know, we do note in in this actually, in this volume actually in a footnote that um, you know when it when it came to Wingspan, uh, Paul went out of his way to compensate Denny financially to make up for the time you know you know where he wasn't getting paid so well you know during those Wings years. But no, that you you could tell when we when we spoke to Denny that he he always said that things like I just love the guy. He, he said that you know I'd drop anything anytime. Uh, to go and play music with Paul. Um, so, you know, it was quite clear that they had a really deep musical and personal connection. You know, some of that connection also began right around the time Spinoza left when Paul and, and Denny went out to lunch and then came back and recorded this sort of jam, uh, Road All Night. Uh, and Denny was always knocked out by that track and always encouraged Paul to do something with it, put it out which he eventually did on one of the uh, archive boxes. But, um, you know, I think that was a bonding experience. Denny certainly took it that way. Um, and then when Paul went to Los Angeles to finish off the album, he invited Denny out there, you know, and Denny only played drums on one thing, but otherwise they were just hanging out and smoking and going to the uh, Oscars and, and whatever else Denny wasn't really needed there. It was very clear that Paul had him there as a friend. And if you consider that um, all of Paul's closest friends had been the Beatles and they were now estranged, um, he needed new friends and he wanted new friends who were musicians, uh, maybe not consciously, but these were the people he respected because they did what he did. And so I think he made that connection during the Ram sessions with Denny and it stayed 
very close all through that first iteration of Wings, which is to say all through our first volume. Yeah, and I think the other thing with Denny as well was that he and his wife, uh, Monique, um, got on really well with Linda and the kids, you know, so that was integral to their relationship. You know, Monique, during the Wings years, would would uh, babysit Mary and Stella uh, and Heather. So, yeah, the, the fact that they kind of understood the family dynamic and, and embraced it was probably one of the reasons why he and, you know, he and Paul and Linda got on so well during that time. So we mentioned the the critical reaction to McCartney, uh, just a word on, on a similar um, area for Ram. So, as you say, Paul completely changed tack, said, OK, if you don't want, you know, lo-fi, homespun stuff, let's go big Abbey Road-esque med- medleys, et cetera, et cetera. And the reviews for Ram were just as poor um, to a certain degree as as the reviews for McCartney the previous year. Why do you think that the the music press weren't weren't ready for Paul at this point? You know, I think in in a certain way, Paul botched the launch of Ram. He decided that he wanted to stay in Scotland and hire Tony Barrow from the old Beatles days to be the publicist and to maybe have a playing for the press without Paul being there to answer questions. And, you know, one of the things Paul is great at is giving his story, you know, of, okay, Mm. this is what I'm doing on this album. And this is what, you know, what I like and what I aim for. And you can't overestimate the importance of being able to hear that from the guy's own mouth. Now, speaking as someone who spent his life as a music critic, I would probably deny that that kind of thing has that much influence over the way we look at things. But, you know, it does. It does. Uh, And basically, Tony Barrow had a, a seating where he played the album for a bunch of the press and they were sort of talking through it, asking each other how their weekend was. And it it just didn't go over well. And I think there's another thing that was happening. I'm not sure how to account for it so much in Britain, because I don't think that Rolling Stone was really big in Britain yet. Um, It was still a pretty new publication, but in America, Rolling Stone had with the first album really set up, an opposition of it's John versus Paul. You don't get to like them both. You got to be on one side or the other. And that was a, a lot of us. I mean, I grew up during that period. I'm a bit older than the two of you. And I remember it very vividly. You know, all the cool guys like John. And um, if you like Paul, well, you know, you might have been a bit of a teeny bopper or whatever. And, you know, and that was largely because of the way Rolling Stone in particular set it up, because all of these sort of underground types were listening, were reading Rolling Stone and listening to FM radio, which was kind of new at the time for, for pop music. You know, I think that at the root of that, to some degree, is the fact that Jan Wenner, the founder and publisher of Rolling Stone, was in London when Paul released the press version of McCartney with the self-interview mm. and says, you know, I don't think I'm going to do much with the Beatles anymore, which was, you know, made a huge splash in the news that day. Wenner interviewed him the day before and Paul neglected to mention <laughs> that he was going to be putting out this 
this QA. I'm not sure quite how it would have worked. Uh, Rolling Stone was published every two weeks. I think probably what happened was that Winter filed his story immediately after interviewing Paul because they were going to press. And the next day, it was very clear that he had not been let in on a a big event that was going to happen. While on the other hand, John Lennon was giving him very long, very detailed interviews and would continue doing that for years. Um, And so, you know, Wenner's own feeling was probably much more friendly towards John than towards Paul. So when the review of the first album came in and was just a standard review where the reviewer liked it and, you know, okay, this is a record review. Wenner said, no, this is not a record review because this isn't a record. This is a manifesto and we have to deal with it as a manifesto. And and so he went back and rewrote it. And now it's the McCartney album is a Trojan horse full of all these nasty things aimed at the Beatles. And so with Ram, you know, it was still that way. It was still that situation that I think may have, I I can't, I can't explain why in the British press there was hostility towards Ram, but um, in America, that would have been the reason. In the background of all this, these two records coming out and the, the writing and recording, obviously the, the Beatles breakup and their financial difficulties and lawsuits are, are all going on. They're all happening and they're all quite naturally running through Paul's thoughts through 70 and 71. Uh, how much of an influence do you think the Beatle thing, the Beatle events are having an effect on Paul through 70 and, and 71? I think that they probably informed just about everything that was going on in his life for that two-year period, really. And and most of the decisions he made, some of the songs he wrote were a response to what was happening. You know, and then you, you get to a period like early 1971 where he's just filed suit against the Beatles and it's public. And, um, you know, he's he's got all these mixed thoughts going on. So he decides to attend the first day of the hearing in February and he decides, well, what can I do to distract the press from what's happening in court that day? So he drops a single. He puts out another day on exactly the same day as the the court case begins in London. So, you know, while he's walking into court that morning with Linda on his arm, radios wirelesses around London are playing his latest song because it's just another day. You know, I mean, that was clearly a conscious choice. And so that's how much, you know, what was going on in his private life was affecting his music and his artistic choices. And as I said, you know, earlier, I think that's why, you know, with this book, we tried to look at everything in, in, in that way, you know, and give the full narrative because, when you separate those two events, you don't quite understand one or the other. And you put the two together, it makes perfect sense. It's just another day. But then, you know, he, he back in uh, America, he, you know, plunges into another period of depression where he's really struggling to get Ram over the line. And uh, the suggestion is that he goes over to Los Angeles to clear his head, which to some extent kind of worked. But again, he's he kind of stutters across the line with Ram. But... But what an end product to come out with after all of that to to produce such a an incredible album. 
but yeah, you know, it's it's hard to wrap your head around um, how he managed to to get through that period and do what he did really, you know, personally and professionally. So famously, after this, this period, Paul decides to to form a new group around himself, which he christens he christens Wings. An obvious question around that, which you did allude to slightly earlier there. Why do you think it was Paul of the of the four Beatles that decided to to form a group? Why was he the one that was keenest to to be to surround himself with other musicians? You know, it's kind of logical. I mean, towards the end of the Beatles, Paul was the one who wanted to go back out on the road. John kind of thought of it in the sense of uh, this idea of the Plastic Ono band, where mm. You know, anybody he wants there at the moment can join. Um, There is an existing letter to Eric Clapton where he talks about, you know, anything you want to do, we can do a band that can be free form, anything, you name it. You want to be in it, we'll work out how to do it. And it just never happened. And I think that, the you know, the way John's life was going at the time and the way George's life was, I don't think they had such a burning desire to have a band in the first place. And in any case, it just wasn't going to happen because of the way they were. John was not a guy who was going to say, okay, let's get together an organization. Let's put together a tour. Let's go out and do it. It just wasn't, that just wasn't John. Um, So it had to be Paul because Paul was the only one interested in that kind of thing. So obviously the, the main person to enter the story at this point and someone that will remain in your story for the, for the foreseeable is one Denny Lane. Tell us a little bit about how he becomes a member of Wings. He ended, he was kind of second choice, really, uh, because Paul originally wanted Hugh McCracken to join the group, having worked with him in New York. So that's that's not saying it. it's nothing against the abilities of Denny Lane. It was just simply that Hugh McCracken was his first choice because they'd worked together in New York. Um, and we spoke with um, Hugh's wife, Holly. And, uh, you know, when you read the book, you'll you know better understand and appreciate the reason why. Um, Hugh turned down Paul's offer to join his band. Paul, you know, we, we've kind of speculated at this point, but this probably really is the case. You know, it went back to um, the music papers and was flicking around to find, you know, who might have been at a loose end at that time. And the guy he calls um, has just left the, you know, Midlands supergroup balls at that time. And, uh, you know, he's doing a bit of um, solo work on his own. He's also, work, you know, writing songs for other artists, um, but effectively living in the back room of, of his manager's offices. So when Paul picked up the phone and called Denny, you know, he obviously didn't think twice uh, about um, going up to Scotland and, you know, forming a new group with him. And within, what was it, three days, they were in the recording studio laying down tracks for wildlife it's funny i was thinking about this the other day paul always has always said that that was kind of influenced by reading a review of um bob dylan's album and and that bob had recorded all these tracks in a week or a day or whatever it was you know and they'd all been first takes but i also wonder whether or not that might have been some trying to turn the clock back to the please please me days where they went into the studio 
very rough and ready and laid down a whole album just like that really quickly. Um, I, I think all Paul's choices around this time were were very much influenced by those early Beatles days, you know, when Wings went back on the road uh, for the first time. It was very much like the Beatles' early days in Hamburg and at the Cavern Club and, and playing pubs and clubs and whatnot around Liverpool and the north of England. And and even the way he auditions musicians, you know, he they they played songs from from you know those early rock and roll formative years of Paul's, you know, Lucille and Blue Moon of Kentucky and all this kind of stuff, Little Richard, uh, you know, all all these uh, um, decisions he makes are him trying to uh, reset the clock. But he, you know, quickly discovered that when you're a superstar former Beatle, that it's impossible to reset the clock when you're under that much press scrutiny. So just a few extra lines on on Denny. We talked a bit about Denny Sywell and, and Paul. Um, Denny Lane, obviously, as we know, is is there for the whole journey. Can you just, just talk a little bit about their relationship personally and musically? Why do you think they they worked pretty well together for quite a long period? I think in a way, Denny Lane's strength in this kind of group is that he was willing to do whatever the boss wanted in a way. He didn't think of himself as the boss. He didn't have really that kind of ego that wanted to be the front man. In fact, I mean, it's very strange as you read Denny Lane interviews um, over the years, right after he finished his own first solo album, um, which had been in the works for years. And because of it, uh, and because he was still under contract to the manager for Balls, uh, he owed this album to that guy as is repayment for him having bought equipment and stuff managers do. Um, he finally gets this album finished and they're going to go to Africa to record Band on the Run. And Denny is giving interviews saying, well, you know, um, I'd like to have maybe some songs on the next Wings album, but I mean, I don't have any material. He has just finished an album and his what he was doing before he went up to Scotland to be in Wings is he had a job uh, as a, a contract songwriter for a publisher. He'd write songs that he hoped other people would record. So he had to have had a backlog of things. That's the thing about Denny, you know, his 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 ego structure is just so different than Paul's. You know, Paul is the star. He knows he's the star. It's what he's always been and it's what he'll always be. Denny Lane doesn't really have that. So he was able to sort of execute what Paul wanted, either as a bass player, if Paul was playing guitar or piano, or as a, guitar, a rhythm guitarist, and as a backup singer. And I think that he was just extremely useful. I mean, how close their relationship was is hard to tell. I mean, the fact that Denny did stick it out for the entire time that Wings existed, um, on one hand, has to tell you something but on the other hand you know we know even even in the volume that we've just finished there was some friction between them sometimes you know um, partly because there was friction between linda and jojo denny's wife 
that always is a bit touchy. If, you know, if, if two guys get along and the wives don't get along, that can be, that can be rough. And that's the way it was. So, you know, it's, it's hard really to characterize their relationship in, in the same way as it is to characterize the relationship with the other Danny because they were tight and that's what it was um, with Denny Lane, a little bit more of a mystery. Wow. Fascinating. Um, so after the release of wildlife wings, then begin 1972 with this, this first tour and Paul is, is back on stage again. And I thought something that came to me when I was reading your book was it was such an underreported part of Paul's history. It, it, it rarely, this tour pops up in in these books that I've read quite a few of, as we know. What stood out for you about this first tour when you were researching it? Was there something that, that really surprised you or that you found particularly interesting? For me, the university tour, I think, is one of my favourite chapters in the whole book. Me too. Because it, it was just such a joy to put together because it was clearly probably one of the most joyous periods that they had as a group, uh, you know, wings. It was, it was just, uh, you know, two weeks or 10 days or whatever it was on the road of a band being a band. One interesting thing was we, we interviewed uh, John Morris, who went on to be the tour manager of the 72 tour. And John Morris told us that he and Paul had spoken before that and they discussed university dates so we we kind of found out that really Paul had been planning the university tour, but not planning it so much as finding out where he might go, you know, what what sort of places, you know, the band might pitch up and play unannounced concerts. So they they probably hit the road with a list of university towns and civil halls, that kind of thing. You know, the rest of it from there on in was just chaos. Really, it was a it was about as disorganized as people think it, it was you know historically but yeah we found so much information about that tour through you know local newspaper sources uh, Monique kept a, a log of all the random hotels they'd stayed in uh, during that time once you piece all that information together th- this crazy period where where they're on the road and, and not only is it crazy because it's completely unplanned but at the time, you've got power strike. Uh, you've, you've got the minor strike, which is causing power cuts. Um, you've got Paul's single, which is about to hit the shops, uh, which was um, about to kick a you know political hornet's nest, pretty much. So you've got all that going on in the backdrop. And when you throw in all these other random encounters that happened during the tour, I mean, there's that brilliant story in the book. I won't give too much away about them bumping into Jose Feliciano. There's just so much character in that one chapter. And yeah, it was an absolute joy piecing that full story together for the first time. Um, in a note that you sent to us, you had asked whether that tour was really as impromptu as mm. it looked. And, you know, and it was, but there were a couple of points where they tried experimented with the idea of letting one of the colleges know in advance that he was coming. And once they got there, there was press and everything and it, it just freaked them out. And they said, no, this isn't what we want. We want to, we want the impromptu thing. And they just drove away and didn't do the gig. So yeah, it was impromptu. It, even when they tried to not make it impromptu, that didn't work because impromptu was, was the goal. 
the shows themselves were generally well received was it something of uh was it seen as a bit of a success for paul in the kind of music press and and local press at the time yeah I, well i think most of the people that went to those concerts were, were they just went with their jaws on the floor because they couldn't believe that a former Beatle had turned up on their university campus with no notice and was about to play a concert for them, in most cases, three or four hours later. So, I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine Paul McCartney coming to your local university and saying he's going to play a concert four hours from now? So I, I don't think it would really mattered um, what, what they played. I mean, they were like a pub band around that time, really. You know, they were playing mainly covers and a, a few songs from Ram and Wildlife critically very well received i think that tour well they tried their best to have the press not there but um people still did write about it um it's interesting as well that you know a lot of seeds are planted at various places in paul's life that sprout up again and i think one that will sprout up in uh maybe volume four of our work is that when he put out the new album he did this same sort of move. He would just turn up. He turned up at Covent Garden. He turned up in Times Square and just did impromptu gigs with no notice and just played them. And it got him a lot of attention and, and the album, too. So, you know, he knows what he's doing. Let's talk about another area. See, one of the joys of your book is there's so many of these areas that of Paul's career that just aren't looked at properly and they deserve to be looked at properly. And obviously your book does do that. And Rev Row Speedway is a record which I absolutely love and loved from age 13 when I took it out of my local library on, on CD and, and listened to it. I don't think it had been checked out for some time before I checked it out but I <laughs> but I loved it and I and I, I I love talking about it and one of the things that uh, your book reminds us of is that Paul brings in Glyn Johns to work on on what was to become Red Rose Speedway and Glyn Johns even more familiar I'm sure to listeners now because of his starring role in Get Back but the relationship with with Glyn on this project isn't quite as as successful uh just tell us a little bit about the recording of red rose speedway and without revealing too much about what went wrong with with paul and glenn yeah well they they turned up in the studio in march of 1972 fresh from the road and paul's got you know a small batch of songs that he'd like to put down on record and brings glenn in because you know maybe because as a five piece it would be better to have a producer to bring some discipline to them in the studio but what happens is the opposite of that really is that they've just come off the road they're all disciplined i think glenn didn't really like that uh, you know he'd uh and he'd just come off working with some pretty major artists glenn at that time as well you know he'd been working with the rolling stones and the who he did the Eagles debut album just before he went in to the studio with Wings. Uh, and Paul came in with what he thought was, you know, a batch of a pretty mediocre songs to start recording. But what you've got to remember with Glyn is that Glyn was there when Paul was plucking songs out of thin air, you know, during the Get Back sessions. Um, you know, he wrote, he wrote Get Back probably with Glyn standing in the corner of the studio on a bass, you know, there on a bass guitar. So I think when Glyn came in uh, for the Red Row Speedway sessions, he probably had his expectations set slightly higher 
than some of the songs that Paul brought in during those sessions. That's not to say that, that there wasn't any magic that came out of those early sessions with Glenn. You know, they did that beautiful version of Tragedy um, with five-part vocal harmonies, which is just sublime. I can't understand for the life of me why that never made it to record. There was some other standout songs from that time. You know, the mess was in pretty good shape. But yeah, for Glenn, I think it was just a draining experience. And, you know, eventually his patience wore thin and he, wa- and, and he walked. How do you think Glenn leaving the sessions affected the sound of, of Rev Row Speedway? Is there, is there a noticeable difference in the sound of the record as the recordings go on? Um, I didn't think so, really. You know, when it really comes down to it, during the era that we cover in this book, Paul is really at his most comfortable when he's producing himself. He just needs an engineer there to see to the technical side of it, make sure it's on. But he has very distinct ideas about what he wants to do with songs. And if he comes in with a song where he doesn't know quite what he wants to do, like something like Loop, um, which was experimental and sort of took place in the studio, drove Glyn Johns crazy. For Paul, that was sort of what he wanted to do. And I think he was more comfortable without a producer second guessing him. So I, I don't think I can't I can't tell a difference hmm. between the Paul produced things and the Glenn Johns produced things. You know, the, for me, the one the one thing is I kind of prefer the double album version of that album. Um, and so it's almost now that now that we've heard the double album version of the album, it, it's almost hard for me to listen to the single album version because there are so many you know other decisions I would have made if it had to be a one al- a single album. The double album was really what he was trying to do. He wanted to show off Wings as a group. We did mention it earlier there, the European tour that Paul undertakes on the recently restored bus, which, again, most listeners will be familiar with. Um, I mean, this is obviously different from the university tour in the sense that it's it's much more organised um, and it's uh, it's a bit more professional one of the things that the book kind of brought home to me pictorially as much as anything else was again, how much Paul is enjoying himself on, on this tour that the pictures show him, you know, really kind of letting loose and, and having a great time on stage. Do you think that this tour, the, this, this European tour was as much of a, a success in inverted commas as the, the university tour? Yeah. Well, I think the the pictures obviously paint, paint a picture of a showman uh, which is exactly what paul is he puts on a brilliant show you go, you go see him live now um but i think a lot of what was going on behind the scenes kind of undermined what was going on on stage you know there was tension amongst the band there was tension between him and the tour manager and you know as the tour rolled on all all these kind of small things started to happen you know, like the the bus not making it to one of the venues on time and they had to get taken away by limousines and they kind of got bust in through the stage door an hour before they went on stage. So a lot of things that, that could go wrong did go wrong. And then obviously that culminates in Paul, Denny and Linda being busted for uh, smuggling drugs into Sweden. So it's interesting, you know, you see that tour bus now that's been beautifully restored by Tom Jennings and his team. Um, I can't wait to uh, see that for myself, actually, next year. 
and you have this amazing kind of vision of this I don't know magical mystery tour but in the wings era but I think the reality of that time on the road was uh, it was far more stressful than the kind of painted facade of that bus you know would tell you it's funny, there are really two things going on. There's the story where, as Adrian says, all this behind the scenes stuff is going on that is not comfortable and not fun. And yet, you know, now we have seen the video that came with the Wings Over Europe tour and, and the CD of, of the audio for that. Um, and it looks like they're having fun. And the thing is that whatever the backstage stuff was, we have those recordings that show that on stage they were cooking. It was really actually pretty good stuff. And we didn't really get to hear it until only a few years ago. I mean, apart from on bootlegs, of course. So um, after that, that tour, the next part of the story, as most listeners will know, is the, the dramatic events around the recording of uh, a band on the run. Uh, and again, your book looks at that in, in really fascinating detail and um, will leave elements of that for the readers to, to find out for themselves. But again, Henry McCullough and the aforementioned uh, Denny Sywell do not come to Lagos with Paul and Denny and Linda to recall Band on the Rum. And it's a bit of a last minute decision, maybe. Do you think that the fact that Henry and Denny don't go with him, uh, do you think it came as a real shock to Paul? Um, I'm not sure it came as a shock with regards to Henry, um, because one thing we we found out from Denny Sywell was that Henry had, had walked previously. Um, he actually walked during the filming of the James Paul McCartney special, and he was persuaded to stick around. Uh, so I think when, when Henry put his gold gibson into into its case and, and walked out of that barn in scotland and departed the rehearsals for band on their own it came as no surprise to all but i think when denny sywell left i think that came as a huge surprise um and you read more about kind of how paul and linda reacted to that in the book and i think they found that really quite devastating when when denny left the recording of band on the run in lagos it, is well covered in your book and there's lots for readers to to look at there but again i think another interesting thing is this was always seen like when i was a, a kid in the 90s and i would read these these magazine articles about paul band on the run was the album where paul kind of came back that was that was the paul album that it was okay to like and yeah the the critical reaction is is much stronger on band on the run than any of the previous records do you think that that was because attitudes to Paul and maybe the Beatles had changed um, from the early part of the 70s? Or do you think that this is just a generally kind of a stronger record? I think it's a stronger record. It has a kind of grit that the previous ones don't have, or at least don't have consistently. But it also has all of the elements of Paul at his best, you know, melodic beauty, interesting harmonic stuff going on. And I think it just just had a, a legitimate, serious appeal to people that I guess the previous ones didn't have or didn't have as consistently. I, I really think it was just that the record was such a good record. I was going to say, it's interesting, though, what you say, Joe, um, you know, because around 
you know, this was around six months after the beat, the other three Beatles had announced that they were getting rid of Alan Klein as their boss. So really, the, the press were now seeing the Beatles as, as a happy camp again. The four Beatles were getting on. They'd recorded with Ringo uh, for his album. So, you know, may, maybe you're right that some of the press attitudes about the Beatles were kind of loosening up now that they were friendly, on friendly terms again. But now I think Alan's absolutely right. I think the material was stronger. Um, I mean, that album was born out of adversity and that kind of defiant, I'll show them kind of attitude. Uh, when, when Denny and Henry walked on the eve of the recording, and I think that that's quite often when Paul's at his musical best, really, is, is when he's he's being defiant like that. As he says in Get Back, when our backs are against the wall is when we produce our best stuff. And I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely relevant with uh, with Band on the Run. So that essentially, gentlemen, is where the book uh, starts to starts to come to a, a conclusion and a question that um, I'm sure you've been asked in other interviews, but I'll ask it myself. What can we expect next from you? Have you got any kind of timeline on what the next book will be and when we might start to hear about that? Well, we're starting the writing. Um, a lot of the research is, is done and ready. Um, so we're sort of working through that now, making it into the book uh it will probably take maybe another i would say close to a year to finish and then from then on it's up to day street uh what their schedule is but i think we're thinking of what the end of 24 for volume two something like that yeah in terms of what we're going to cover uh story-wise it, it will pick up the narrative in 74 where paul um, records uh, the McGear album with his brother, which again is another underexplored project of, of Paul's because it's as much of a, you know, a, a McCartney project as a McGear project, really. The two of them had an equal input in that. Uh, and the story will go through to some time in 1980, but we're not going to tell you when. Fair enough. Tensor hooks, gentlemen, tensor hooks. That's what it's always best to to leave them on um well agent alan it's been such a pleasure talking to you it's uh just a, a wonderful book and i'm just hearing you talk about the next volume i i'm already excited so nothing else to say but thanks both of you so much for speaking to me thanks for having us absolute pleasure thanks joe